Hello and a very warm welcome to this, our final podcast in the Living in Love and Faith series. A more reflective emphasis as we consider the key part that prayer and the seeking of divine guidance may have in ordering our varied, perhaps conflicting thoughts on human identity, sexuality, marriage and relationships. The subtle attributes of prayer are versatile able to serve and multitask as praise, thanks, confession, lament, contemplation, intercession, and you may like to add more to that list. For American Catholic theologian Dr. Ralph Martin, prayer is at root, simply paying attention to God. And whilst being mindful of the reality that determining God's guidance can at times make us feel like a helplessly revolving weather vane in a tornado, we'll discuss how to recognise the providential torch shining in the dark. My name is Stuart Henderson. I'm a poet, broadcaster and songwriter as we embark on the quest of seeking answers. How do we hear God through prayer. The Right Reverend Dr Christopher Coxworth has served as Bishop of Coventry since 2008, prior to which he was Principal of Ridley Hall, Cambridge, with a degree in Theology from the University of Manchester, followed by a PhD, Christopher Coxworth is also an editorial member of the multi-faith Peace Charter for Forgiveness and Reconciliation. He is chair of the Living in Love and Faith Coordinating Group. The Reverend Dr Isabel Hamley currently serves as chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury, licensed to the post in 2017. Formerly a probation officer, she previously taught biblical studies and practical theology at St John's College, Nottingham, and for 10 years Isabel Hamley tutored in the School of Continuing Education at Nottingham University. Her theological commentary on specific chapters in the Book of Judges, Unspeakable Things Unspoken, was published in 2019. Dr Amy Dawson is a lecturer in practical theology in the Department of Theology and Religion at the University of Birmingham, where she directs the professional doctorate in practical theology and teaches on themes of identity and religion and society. With a PhD in Theological Ethics from Trinity College Dublin, Amy Dawson also lectured in Political Theology at the Margaret Beaufort Institute of Theology, Cambridge, and served for three years as the Secretary of the Catholic Theological Association of Great Britain. The Reverend Marcus Green graduated from Oxford University with a degree in History, and studied theology at Wycliffe Hall. He is currently rector of three rural parishes in North Oxfordshire, where he served since 2013. Previous to that, Marcus Green served the church in West and South Wales and city centre Oxford. His most recent book, The Possibility of Difference, offers a biblical affirmation of inclusivity. If prayer to quote the LLF chapter, is the place in which all our deliberation, conversation, study and reflection comes together and our discernment is formed, how do we ensure that such intrusions as opinion, prejudices or desire 
do not dominate the proceedings and that the marginalised voices are heard. Amy. I don't know that you can be sure of it. You can only try. But the language of desire, I think, is really interesting because so much of what makes up prayer is to do with desire. We're, we're seeking what we want from God so often, but also what we want for the world. And the formation of desire is, is I think, rightly shaped by opinion when it's thoughtful and reflected on and reasoned rather than arbitrary. So the idea of prayer is a kind of crucible where where these elements should be part of what we're doing in the work of prayer. They should be the matter of the prayer. I exclude prejudice. I think that's a different kind of thing. That is where opinion becomes, I think, arbitrary and unreasoned. But in terms of what that means for this process that we are all embarked on, I think that yeah, that, that image of the crucible is a key one. You can't do it quickly. You can't just set up prayer in such a way that everyone will suddenly be open. That's work that people who are participating have to be engaged in themselves as well. So I think what it is, is a summons. I'll put it that way. It's a summons to others to engage in prayer in a meaningful way. And what about the, the marginalised voices in, in danger of being excluded? Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great challenge, I think, to what I just said, because one of the best ways of ensuring marginalised voices are included is in amplifying them when they're being shared. And that is a structural question. That is to do with how you set up the opportunity for that. So, yeah, that's a really helpful uh, kind of critique, I think, of what I was initially saying. I think there's a couple of things in play. There's the the matter of the work itself, so the things that have been written in the LLF process, the resources that have come from it, which have sought to attend to voices that have been marginalised and amplify them in ways that reflect them as part of the whole picture of the church. And the second is to do with the prayerfulness of being gathered together. So the task that's in front of you as a prayerful community is also to draw in, it's also to look outwards and to attend to these things. Christopher, as shepherd of the coordinating group, a, a considerable calling for you, how, how have you ensured in an equitable manner that the marginalised are heard? I would not claim to say that I have ensured that. I have sought that and aimed for it and hoped for it. And I, th I think one way that has been expressed, at least in intention, was trying to ensure that everything that we did was framed by prayer. I remember the, the first meeting that we had was in my house and we began with the Eucharist in, in the chapel. And I think we were good when we met together by always praying together and by allowing voices to be heard, each other's voices to be heard in prayer. I do remember there was one uh, occasion when 
extended the, the, the meeting beyond the coordinating group to the thematic working party groups and also something called the pastoral advisory group. And it was quite a difficult meeting. We might not talk about it more later. I do remember one moment in it, though. It was at the end of the first day. It was a residential meeting, and we gathered in the chapel for the Eucharist. And and one of the members of the coordinating group, this is Alex, who is a gift to us from the United Reformed Church and is trans. I, I asked him to read the gospel in, in the Eucharist, and that was clearly, as he spoke about it later, quite a powerful moment for him because... He used to worship in an Episcopally ordered church, and as he made his journey of transition, he found himself very unwelcome there. And so this was the first time he'd shared in the Eucharist in an Anglican setting. And uh, I felt there, even though it was a very demanding meeting and not everything went right, at that moment, by the grace of God, was right and was good. Isabel, you've spoken in a previous podcast about being on the receiving end of prejudice within the church because of your calling as uh, as a priest. Do you identify with the marginalised voices because of that? I think all of us um, are part of very complex webs of uh, power and powerlessness so that in different contexts we might be the person holding more power and in others the person being more powerless. So I would say I do know what it feels like to be marginalised but I also know that I have plenty of privileges that mean that I am very rarely the most marginalised voice in a room. But I do feel really strongly about enabling marginalised voices to be heard. And for me, that's part of, I mean, when it comes to prayer, I think prayer is about the whole of life. So it's not the case that we do one thing in a process and we do another in prayer. I think when we pray, that prompts us to change the way we act. And the way we act shapes the way that we pray. And Marcus, as a gay man, how do you pray with those who perhaps would not recognise your sexuality nor even your calling to the priesthood? When you are in a minority, you understand life differently. A minority is always a minority. We are not the majority. We do not get to live life the same way. We do not get to run the show. And there are times when inevitably we want to fight and just be able to make the world different. And it's really important, actually, when we're talking about prayer, that we understand there are times people don't hear each other. That's okay. God hears. And there are times when we want to be really good at our job to try and help people hear what's going on, to try and help people hear what life is like from, from this corner. And when people are not looking at me, as I, I wish they would, um, uh, to try and do better at that explanation. But there are also times when I just have to sit back and go, God loves me and um, my life with God is okay. There are times 
when uh, everybody here involved in this knows that, you know, I will stand up and shout. Um, but actually, the peace never comes through shouting. There is peace in powerlessness. Uh, the Magnificat, which at Anglicans we all know very well, um, uh, says um, he humbles the proud and exalts the humble and meek. So what's the point of trying to be the powerful? And that is a trick that all of us need. Christopher? I do think it's really important for Christians to hear other people praying, to be in the same space when they're praying, to hear others voice their prayer to God. There's something deeply um, authentic about that. Um, that even if you may disagree with this person, you find you 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 hear them, uh, like you, a disciple of Christ who's calling out to God. The other, perhaps, I mentioned to throw in is is prayer as penitence. I, I've been now in Coventry for twelve years, and we have this very simple prayer built into something called the Coventry Litany of Reconciliation, and it 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 just repeats, "Father, forgive." I hope that permeates LLF in, in every form, that, that that simple prayer, Father, forgive, there's so much hurt that's being caused through some of the conversations that we're trying to have now, and we, we call out to God, Father, forgive, and bring us into a place of healing and hope and a, a different way of being together as, as, as common prayers. We're, together, we're all prayers to the Lord. And so to those moments in the yearning for guidance process, when clarity is elusive and opaque is all we hear and feel and perhaps think. Those times when, to quote Sylvia Plath, I talk to God, but the sky is empty. Where is God's guidance in that blank becoming? Isabel. Sorry, that kind of quote from Sylvia Plath took me back to a very specific time in my life where it did feel like the sky was empty. Um, I mean, our question reminds me of something I've read that Mother Teresa used to say that for most of her life, she felt as if God was silent and she struggled to hear God. And I wonder whether sometimes... Our expectations of what we might hear are actually part of the problem, that God is not absent or silent, but our expectation of how God would speak and how God makes himself heard um, is part of the problem. And actually, most of our Christian life is about learning to walk with God in the muddle of what life is like. It's learning to discern God in times when the sky is dark and, and empty and it's walking faithfully with what God has already given us and leaning onto one another in faith. So when I think that the sky is empty, actually, the sky might be empty to me, but there might be other Christians around me who can see more clearly. And so I don't think I ever pray alone. Even if I'm praying on my own, I'm not alone in prayer. I'm part of the prayers 
of the entire church. Marcus. Sorry, Isabel, I just want to just jump in here because I think you are so right. I just want to go amen, amen, amen to you there, there because what do we do when the sky is dark? We realize we are not alone. So my sky is dark, but I've got Christopher praying for me and I've got Amy praying for me and I've got Isabel praying for me. One of the darkest points in my life was when I actually made the decision to stop hiding my sexuality and come out. And that period of time was so, so difficult. It really was because I I was so angry with so many people at the time and so angry with the church at that time. But actually, it was people in the church who carried me through it. I had an amazing archdeacon. I had an amazing archdeacon. You don't hear that phrase very often, do you? Um, and a terrific bishop who believed in me more than I believed in myself and other people around me who just carried me by their prayers and by their love Um, and I so agree with what Isabel just said it's other people this is why I am committed to LLF as much as I am because I am not in it for myself I think other people are fundamentally important and we are here for the body of Christ. Jesus loves his church and so do we. Amy, a a poet that may be familiar to you, Gerard Manley Hopkins, was able to write of the utter bereft but also the bliss of now and the hope of that to come. What do you do in in those, those blank times? where all is silence, all is dark. Do you know uh, the piece of music by John Taverner called The Protecting Veil? I do, yes. But for those who've not heard it before, the first part of the music has this very, very long tone. So it's, it's for cello and strings, so it's this gorgeously pulled through thin note that resonates and resonates more strongly as the rest of the music opens up. And I was thinking about that in the previous conversation because that's, I think, maybe a a better image than that empty sky, that there's this ringing wire underneath everything. So even in the dark moments, which are real and confront us, there is underneath this ringing, this, this protecting veil. So in terms of what I do, I often will play Taverner, <laughs> not least because it gives that lovely longitudinal pull into the future from, from the difficult moment. If one way in which God answers our, our prayers for guidance is in specific spiritual gifts, as the LLF chapter suggests, what then do those spiritual gifts look and sound like? Because perhaps the ordinary person in the street, that sounds a bit esoteric. What do you mean? What does that practically mean? Christopher? Well, those gifts in the New Testament are described with the word of, of gift, of grace. God's grace is at work among us, and God does communicate, God does reveal. So I, I would expect God to be gifting Uh, everybody involved in this process who's entering into it faithfully and prayerfully. And then I would hope that those gifts of grace are shared with each other, offered offered to each other, so as 
It also refers in the book um, when someone feels that God has spoken to them, well, just share that and let, let that be tested by others. And none of that is to say that sort of um, bypasses all the hard study. I think it is, it is just part of what we bring to this whole process of discernment. Marcus? And those gifts really are exceptionally varied. Um, we look at the list of spiritual gifts that there are in the New Testament, but actually people are gifts and people are varied. Um, one of my favourite bits of the LLF book is the chapter that just talks about diversity as a gift from God in creation. Difference is not bad, it's good. And the gifts that we bring, uh, the way that I understand life is quite different from my straight friends. I know it is because I listen to them speak and I haven't the foggiest what they're talking about sometimes. I just don't understand. Such as? Just the way that they talk about life, the way that I honestly, for years, I tried to pass as a straight bloke and um, I was really good at faking it a lot of the time. But a lot of the time I was hoping no one was noticing because I really had no idea what was going on. Scariest place I ever went into the cricket club. Honestly, I find cricket clubs desperately scary. It's the bastion of male straightness. Uh, I find those places, whereas other my friends go into them and it's a natural environment. And I just kind of look at it and go, what is going on here? Um, the difference is fantastic. It's a wonderful, godly thing. Amy, what, what does the phrase spiritual gifts mean to you? Well, gifts are for giving. But they're also for receiving, right? And this is this is the thread that's run through what we've been talking about, that the, the mutuality that's in play if we try to talk about spiritual gifts. And of course, those who are in the diversity of different Christian traditions will, will also mean different things by this. So it will it will mean, you know, quite dramatic things like speaking in tongues, for example. But it can run all the way through to that person who is able to somehow hold their temper forever <laughs> and is so eternally patient so yeah i think there's when we talk about spiritual gifts just concretely we mean very very different sorts of things but the point that's being made about that diversity that is good in itself is to do with the exchange that's at play it's to do with the mutuality where those gifts are being offered to each other um, as things that will enrich and form us for the lives we're seeking to live together Playing devil's advocate here then, then couldn't a, a spiritual gift in its manifestation, especially within a public meeting, couldn't it be used subtly or not as a rallying point to suppress others, all in the cause of seeking guidance? The power of the charismatic personality saying, God has told me. This is true for your life. I remember um, John Wimber, who uh, had a great influence on the, many of the churches, uh, um, saying, uh, yes, yeah, someone said that to him, and he said, well, God hasn't told me yet. Maybe that, that sort of reinforces what we've just been saying, that the church is the church. It's made up of the people of God. It's not an individual. And therefore... Therefore, as Paul says, when someone says that, and Paul doesn't expect people to say it quite that strongly, I think, but 
to, to offer something that, that they feel God has said, then Paul says, and this is wise uh, advice, and, it's, uh, and I, I think it's underlying the whole LLF work, we must discern, and we discern together. And therefore we need to be listening to each other prayerfully in that discernment. Isabel, anything to add? Yes, it strikes me that in the church there are two equal and opposite dangers, which is one which says, you can't tell me to do or be anything. And the other is, I accept everything that you say. And I think either is actually slightly misguided. I think it's right to offer, but it's also right to discern together what is right and true. And there's also something about spaces of safety and accountability. So one of the people I trust most in the world is my spiritual director. And if he tells me, I think that God might be saying something to you, I will listen to that very carefully because I completely trust what he has to say. I trust that he's much wiser I'm much more mature a Christian than I probably will ever be. And so there is a place for me to listen to that. But that's very different from somebody I barely know kind of coming up to me and saying, women shouldn't be ordained. And God is telling you that you shouldn't be where you are to come back to a thread we picked up on earlier. So it's quite complex. It also reminds me, of, uh, I'm a big fan of Walter Brueggemann, and um, in his book on the prophetic imagination, he talks about the prophet and that a lot of people want to be prophet and be able to say, this is what you should do, thus says the Lord. And that prophecy has a great capacity to be strident and ungracious. But that true prophecy comes with bearing the cross of what it's going to mean to change things. So that Christ was a prophet, but Christ also bore the cost of what it would take to change the world. And that often makes me kind of stop and think, I rail about injustice because I'm like that. But am I willing to go the distance in bearing the cost of what it's going to be like to change it? Marcus? I, I, I come back to what I said earlier about the question of power. Uh, and the Magnificat. He brings down the powerful from their seat and exalts the humble and meek. Um, uh, look, any LGBTQ person being brought into this conversation, hears what you said, Stuart, and says, Amen, thank you for saying that, because there is no question that spiritual gifts um, have been used in the church and are being used in the church um, to make uh, LGBTQ people feel less and um but i would want to say quite clearly that that's not the use of spiritual gifts that's the abuse of spiritual power and that's a very different issue um and i don't think anybody here would for a moment want to condone the abuse of spiritual power but that all of us would want to advocate for the use of spiritual gifts they're very very different things um, and what we're trying to do in LLF is say spiritual gifts in the church, that listening, that humility, that openness, that 
Father forgive where it's needed, that soft hearts, um, that taking things forward, that diversity, that's a great thing. The standing over others and imposing, as you described, is, is, is a terrible thing. Um, the archbishops apologize for that hurt in the book, um, and uh, I, for one, am really, really grateful they made that statement, um, and, um, and, and hope we see more fruit from that kind of apology. Amy? There's something in the Christian tradition that is intended to be utopic, right? Like, as in, it's pointing towards a utopia. That's, that's the nature of Christian logic. The transformation of exchanges of gifts into um, the, the full flourishing of communion with God. And there's something really beguiling in that because it's the fervent desire of our hearts. But it's consequently also really easy to bring forward and to, to close down too quickly. And instead, there needs to be, I think, a provisionality in, in the visions we're offering to each other, um, however spiritually founded they are. We are all listeners in that sense. So anything that, that closes down too quickly, I think is, is exactly as Marcus was saying, it's, it's actually the abuse of spiritual power rather than the outworking of a spiritual gift where there's a further exploration to be made always, always an opportunity to say more. The 19th century influential Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard said, and you've all touched on this in fact, the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. How have you been changed individually by praying and pursuing guidance through the LLF process? Marcus. If I may be really, really honest, it's been quite hard at times being part of the LLF process as a gay man. And I had friends on the outside who, seeing me struggle, constantly said, withdraw, withdraw. And um, what kept me part of the process, apart from lots of lovely people, was the fact that it's important to be in the room because before me have been gay people who have really struggled and had a much worse life than I have. And I very much hope that after me will come gay people who have a much better life than, than I have had. And, and being part of this discussion is part of that story. And I'm privileged to be part of this discussion, but it is hard because it makes me feel my life and it makes me see what I have not had. And there have been moments where I have suddenly understood and grieved. And the pain of that was a constant reminder that this is never about theory or theology or church politics. What we are doing here is about people. Christopher, where are you now as opposed to where you started with the LLF process? I think where I am now is this Coventry prayer, Father, forgive. That has taken on a new meaning for me uh, um, in my part in, in the process, needing to pray for God's forgiveness for when I haven't got things right, 
in this piece of work and in our in our common endeavors it's left me with a a, a deeper sense of of my need always uh, for that forgiveness but for that need not only for me but for us all can we all together somehow say father forgive and i think where i am is also um a renewed confidence in well in the amazing grace of God, in being more ready to be amazed by God's grace. In that sense, my faith has been renewed through this, in what seems like a set of deep problems for the church. Uh, there is a way through this, and, and I believe that deeply, and I pray that this work we've done together will help. I don't know what it, I don't know what, I don't know what that, that, that that place will be where we, we come to and exactly how God's going to get us there. But my faith has been renewed that God can get us there. And Isabel, you've outed yourself in this podcast as a perpetual questioner, always the why, always the why, which um, uh, I would dare to suggest is a Christ-like quality, always the why. How has LLF changed you with the questions that you've been asking? Overall, I would say it has given me a much greater sense of God's church and much deeper love for God's church. I've been in various churches before, you know, of various kinds, but I think the diversity within LLF and the ability to talk about that diversity vulnerably and openly has made it one of the deepest experiences of the breadth of God's church that I have ever had. I feel this incredible sense of, it sounds corny, but love for the people who have been taking part in the process and that absolutely visceral sense that I don't want any of them to walk away from the church. I don't want any of them to not be part of the people who worship together. And I know even if we split and we had different churches, we would still be part of God's church universal together. But there is within me really that just longing for us to keep praying together, to keep worshiping together, regardless of what the disagreements might be. And Amy, just a, a two-parter to you. Uh, one, how has the LLF process changed you and also in your capacity as a, a lay Roman Catholic involved in the initiative what would be your prayer for the Church of England? Yeah I was a very hesitant participant initially I think in the whole process. Um, hesitant because of the things you've just named um, this isn't this isn't my house as it were but there's been something really integrative for me in the experience of the process of paying attention to the different voices, the different forms of discussion in which those voices were heard, that the voice of experience carries with it real potential for transformation. And I knew that, I'm a practical theologian, that's the point. But it's rare, I think, that one gets to attend to the sustained consideration of what that means together. So what's changed for me is I feel as though 
the the significance of even fragmentary sort of reflections on experience these 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 tiny insights that one gains from how other people explain themselves and narrate themselves and understand themselves in relationship to God are these suddenly startling glimmers of of insight. So it feels as though the voices that I encountered through this process have become, yeah, voices that mediate God in a way that I wasn't really expecting, I think, from the process. So as a prayer for the church, listen. And for everyone else, prayer for the Church of England in closing. Marcus. A prayer for the Church of England. I think that's above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> the, We've got a bishop as backup, so don't worry. Yeah, that's great. He's going to do this much better than I am. I'm looking it up in the book. <laughs> I'm so glad Chris is looking it up in the book so that we'll be fine. My prayer for the Church of England is that all God's people are equally all God's people. Not in word, but in life and in deed. A church should be a safe haven for everyone. And my prayer is that we will be. We're supposed to be the national church. And for years, we've not quite fulfilled that vision for LGBTQ people. It's true for others as well, but this is what we're talking about here. And my prayer is that actually we shouldn't be a pressure group for one group or another. We shouldn't be a pressure group that suddenly has power shifted this way or that way. That's not the point. The Church of England is a big house with many rooms. And we should be a safe house for everyone. My prayer is we get there. Isabel. I think my prayer would simply be, may we love one another just as God in Christ has loved us. And Christopher, final word, please. My prayer would be really where the, the book ends. It, it, it ends with Jesus's last recorded words to Peter, Peter who had denied him previously and whom he now invites to follow him and to love him. He says, you, follow me. In Greek, it's even stronger. It's, it's you, me, follow. My prayer for the church is that we will follow Christ. We will be obedient to Christ, faithful to Christ. And the, the book does end with a, a, a prayer composed for the project. May I end with that and make that my prayer, maybe our prayer. Lord Jesus, Write the story of your grace and truth into the lives of your people, that believing in you, the world may have life in your name. Thank you very much for joining us in this podcast, and my thanks to Christopher Coxworth, Isabel Hamley, Marcus Green and Amy Dorton. You can avail yourself of other podcasts in the LLF online library. You'll also hear some revealing 
personal stories from our contributors. My sincere thanks to all who gave their time, expertise and testimony. And as a final hurrah, if you'd like to rate or review this podcast, that would be much appreciated. Further resources are available at churchofengland.org forward slash LLF. Goodbye and thank you very much for listening.